Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. Today we are looking at the eighth chapter of Nehemiah, which is a pivotal chapter in all of the Bible. And today's teaching is entitled, A Series on Hatred, Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah 8 is a rather confusing passage of scripture unless you understand some major themes that happen throughout the Bible. So to understand Nehemiah 8, we have to go back all the way to 1900 BCE, where the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians, as told in the book of Exodus. Now, the Israelites are enslaved for 400 years, or the equivalent of 10 generations. They cry out to God, and God hears their prayer and liberates them with a mighty and miraculous hand. God then leads them into the wilderness, and while they are in the wilderness, God asks them to build a house so that God may dwell among them. This house is known as the tabernacle. Once the tabernacle is completed, the children of Israel gather around the tabernacle in a grand dedication ceremony. Now, we can read about this ceremony in Leviticus chapter 9, And there's all sorts of things that are difficult for us to comprehend in 2019, but there's one thing that is very clear. Once the ceremony is over, we read in Leviticus 9, 24, fire came out from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. Now, there is some debate as to whether or not the fire came out from the tabernacle or fire came from heaven. Either way, though, miraculous fire showed up and the children of Israel fall down on their faces in worship, reverence, and awe because God is with them. How do they know? Because they saw miraculous fire consume the offering on the altar. So the tabernacle is the center of all Israelite religion. And the building's presence is a reminder of God's presence among the people of Israel. This goes on for the next 500 years until around the year 1050 BCE. During this time, we find the 12 tribes of Israel scattered throughout the promised land, but they collectively decide that they want a king to rule over them. A man named Saul from the tribe of Benjamin is chosen to be their king. And Saul unites the 12 tribes of Israel and brings them into one nation. Now, biblical scholars have a term for this action, and the term is consolidation. Yeah, you're welcome. I was very happy with that joke. So Saul unites the 12 tribes of Israel Saul is then overthrown by a man named David. David becomes the king of Israel, and then David dies. His son Solomon takes over the throne sometime around 970 BCE and reigns for 40 years until about 930 BCE. Now, under Solomon's reign, Israel is led into a golden age of wealth, prosperity, and power. And because of the unprecedented wealth, Solomon decides that this tabernacle will no longer suffice for the God that he worships. So Solomon builds a temple. But this is no ordinary structure. Solomon goes for broke. This is a grand and opulent cathedral that is to serve as a permanent home for Solomon's God. 
and replace the tabernacle. So the temple takes seven years to build, and when it's finally completed, there is a grand dedication ceremony, complete with all kinds of rituals that are mysterious to us in 2019. But then after those rituals are done, something happens. Now, I say something happens because we have two accounts of this story. One is found in 1 Kings, and the other is found in 2 Chronicles. Both of these stories talk about something happening, even though they disagree on what that thing that happened actually was. At the conclusion of the ceremony, 1 Kings tells us that a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Chronicles tells a bit of a different story. We read in chapter 7, verse 1, when Solomon had ended his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the nation of Israel saw this fire falling down from heaven or this thick cloud and responded by falling on their faces and praising God because they had a real strong sense that God was with them. So the temple was a daily reminder that God was very real and that God was present in the midst of their city of Jerusalem. About 400 years later, there is a power that rises to the east known as Babylon. And in 597 BCE, they launched their first attack on the tiny nation of Judah. Now, Judah responds by saying, God will protect us. After all, God lives in the temple among us, and God's army is more powerful than the Babylonian army. So when the Babylonians charge, there is this great wave of faith that takes over the people of Judah that God will intervene and protect them. But God doesn't do that. The Babylonians attack and defeat the army of Judah at the Battle of Jerusalem. Now, there's a prophet, Ezekiel, who is there at that time. And during this battle, he remembers looking at the temple. And it's here while he's looking at the temple in the middle of this losing battle that he receives a vision that he tells us about in Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel writes that the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. Now, imagine what that vision implies. That vision tells us that God has abandoned the people of Judah in the midst of their greatest hour of need. So Babylon defeats the people of Judah, and 11 years later, in 586 BCE, they decide they're going to totally destroy Jerusalem, including the temple, and they force all of the survivors to come back across the desert to the east to live in Babylon as Babylonians. This is known as the exile, and it goes on for 47 years until 539 BCE. In that year, a man named Cyrus the Great from another empire, the Persian Empire, attacks the Babylonians, defeats the Babylonians, and then looks at the survivors from Judah and says, who are you? And the people from Judah say, we are from Judah. And Cyrus says, you are free to go home as long as you pay taxes to me and the Persian Empire. So the people of Judah rejoice because God has sent them a Messiah to liberate them from the Babylonian Empire. 
And so the people of Judah return back to Jerusalem. They begin to rebuild it. And of course, they want to rebuild their temple first and foremost. Cyrus hears about their longing to rebuild the temple. And Cyrus gives them money to rebuild the temple because he wants the people of Judah to be favorable toward the Persian Empire. So the people of Judah lay the foundation. They rebuild the temple. This is a process that takes years. And when this new temple is finished, there is a grand dedication ceremony that takes place. And at the end of the ceremony, you can imagine the people of Judah who have been through all kinds of hardships rebuilding this temple. They finish the ceremony and they wait for some miraculous sign to show up. They say to themselves, maybe God will send fire from heaven again. Maybe God will appear in a thick cloud or maybe God will give us a new sign like an earthquake or a red sky or something. Either way, we will see a sign that God is with us. So the dedication ceremony comes to a close and the people of Judah wait. And nothing happens. Imagine the disappointment that the nation of Judah feels in this moment. Now there is a big question that arises in response to no miraculous sign blessing this new temple. This question is the defining question of the post-exilic period, the period after the exile. And the question that is asked is simply this. Are we still the people of God? Now, Ezra and Nehemiah is written in an attempt to answer that question. And about 50 to 70 years after that question has started to be asked, we get to the book of Nehemiah and specifically Nehemiah chapter 8. We read in verse 1, they told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could hear with understanding. He read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, about six hours, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So they read from the book, from the law of God with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord and not to be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
So the Levites stilled all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now, if you're like me, you read this and you say, what? (laughs) What happens here? Nehemiah opens the book and people immediately stand up. Not only that, but they stand there for six hours. They clap their hands. They shout amen. They fall on their faces. What is happening here? When you read this, you have to understand a couple of things about the current culture that this story takes place in. According to Dr. Roger Nam, there is about a 1% to 7% literacy rate in the people of Judah at this time. Not only that, but they were speaking a different language than what the Bible was written in. So here you have Ezra, the high priest, standing before people and reading a book that people cannot read on their own, and he interprets it into a language that they can understand. This is captured in the last verse we read, verse 12, when Nehemiah writes, And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now, in America today, we take literacy for granted. It's not really a miracle for us to go and buy a book and then read that book. But 2,500 years ago in Jerusalem, you can imagine that it was something of a miracle. Now, I use the word miracle intentionally because when we define miracles today, a miracle is fire falling from heaven or clouds coming out of buildings or some other supernatural sign, right? But for people 2,500 years ago living in Jerusalem who were illiterate and who had never heard the scripture in a language they could understand, you can see how reading from this book with interpretation is a miracle. So when we ask the question, what is happening here in this story? The answer is Jerusalem is experiencing the presence of God through the written word. And given the fact that this was a group of people who just built a temple that God supposedly didn't show up for, you can imagine the people of Jerusalem saying, God is with us again. Well, how do you know that? Because the scroll is a miracle. And who needs fire from heaven when you can have words on a page? So when we read Nehemiah 8, what we must understand is that the reading and the presence of the scroll is in fact the miraculous sign that God is still with Jerusalem. And while writing in a book may not seem like a miracle to us today, it's important for us to understand how it would be perceived as a miracle 2,500 years ago. Now, after this scroll and this religious revival takes place in Jerusalem, we then turn to Nehemiah 9, where Ezra, the high priest, bows before God and prays one of the longest prayers in the Bible. The summary of this prayer is simply this. God, we're really sorry that we have not kept your word as faithfully as we should have. 
Those were our ancestors, though, and they were bad people. And we, their descendants, are not like them. We're so much better than them. We are recommitting to you and will be the first generation that takes your word seriously. Now, Nehemiah, the governor, hears Ezra's prayer and essentially says, don't worry, Ezra, we won't screw this up like our ancestors. And because Nehemiah is the governor, he forms or writes a covenant, which is a contract or a law, and he gets all of the leaders to sign this covenant. Now, there are several religious laws in the covenant, but we're going to just focus on one found in verse 31, where we read these words. And if the peoples of the land bring in merchandise or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. Now, this law that is in the covenant is referencing the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment stipulates that you shall not work on the Sabbath because we are to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So Nehemiah wants a law that discourages commerce from happening on the Sabbath. Which is a rather strange thing for a governor to put into law, isn't it? And with this strangeness, we have to ask the question, what is happening here? And what this contract, what this covenant represents is its religious and government leaders attempting to institutionalize the presence of God. The people of Jerusalem experienced the presence of God through this written and spoken and interpreted word. And there were people who were in power in religion and government who looked at it and said, oh, we can make a system that protects this revival. And so they write a law about how it's not enough just to keep the Sabbath, but it is now illegal to break the Sabbath. Just three chapters later, we read about how Nehemiah, the governor, has to return to Persia and after spending some time there, then returns back to Jerusalem. Now, he's very discouraged by what he sees because people aren't following the laws that were set up in the covenant. Specifically, people are buying and selling goods on Sabbath. We read about this in Nehemiah 13. We'll start reading in verse 15. In those days, I, being Nehemiah, saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them at that time against selling food. Tyrians who are from the nation of Tyre also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is discouraged that the people of Jerusalem are working on the Sabbath. Not only that, but there are visitors who are coming into Jerusalem and also working on the Sabbath. So in verse 19, he tells us what he's going to do about this. We read, when it began to be dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I set some of my servants over the gates to prevent any burden from being brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem once or twice. Now, why are they spending the night outside of Jerusalem? Because Nehemiah has closed the gates, 
people show up and they say, we'd like to stay inside the walls. And Nehemiah says, nope, it's the Sabbath. And if you come in here, you're going to sell stuff. So they spend a night outside of the walls. And we read in verse 20 how Nehemiah reacts to them spending a night outside the walls. He writes, but I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Verse 22, and I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Now, here we have two verses that I'd like for us to focus on, 21 and 22. In 21, Nehemiah says to the merchants outside the wall, if you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Now, that's a rather frightening thing to say because it is a threat of violence. And what's really strange about this threat of violence is that Nehemiah does this to protect the Sabbath. Now, Jews to this day talk about the Sabbath and they greet one another on the Sabbath by saying two words, Shabbat Shalom, Sabbath peace. In other words, peace is interwoven into the idea and practice and presence of the Sabbath. So Nehemiah, in order to protect the day of peace, threatens violence against anyone who might blemish this day of peace, which I would say is awfully hypocritical. Not only that, but we read in the next verse, and I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates. So here you have the governor, Nehemiah, employing people to protect the gates to ensure that other people won't work on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah essentially says, it's okay for me to employ people, but all of you underlings can't be trusted to understand when it is okay and not okay to work on the Sabbath. So between those two verses, we ask our question, what happens here? And I think in Nehemiah 13, we see how the religious and state institutions weaponize the Bible and the Sabbath to solidify their power. And Ezra and Nehemiah use and abuse the Sabbath in order to make themselves more powerful. And I will tell you that one of the hallmarks of an abuse of power is when people in charge set all kinds of rules and then those rules do not apply to them. So here in Nehemiah 8, we read about a rediscovery of the Bible and its deeply meaningful to the people of Jerusalem. Then in Nehemiah 10, we read about people who are in power, who are trying then to institutionalize that moment, that special presence of God. And then in Nehemiah 13, we read about institutions who are then weaponizing the Bible, the revival, the presence of God to solidify their power. This is a complicated, messy, and terrible story. But I think there are three things that we can learn from Nehemiah 8. The first thing is this. When you look at the stories of the dedication of the tabernacle and the temple, we read about fire and clouds and these signs that show the people of Israel that God is with them. Then we read in Nehemiah 8 about how this scroll, this book is opened 
and how the people respond in the same way. And it's a reminder that God is with them. And when we read these stories today, there is this kind of jealousy that sets in with our modern mindset. We look back at these stories and we say, man, it would be so nice to see fire fall from heaven. I would be a much better believer if I just saw one miracle like that. Or perhaps you read the story of Nehemiah 8 and you read about people who stand up and shout and say amen and fall down in reverence and in response to the reading of the Bible. And you say to yourself, man, if my whole community was just that excited about reading the Bible, if we could get back to being that excited about reading God's word, oh, then that would be an easy path to following God. But what we must learn from this story is that fire and clouds are symbols and the Bible and Sabbath are practices that remind us of God's presence. They are not God's presence themselves. God does not exist so that we can read the Bible. The Bible exists so that we can know God. And so the first thing that we can learn from Nehemiah 8 is this. We must learn to keep signs, symbols, and practices of God's presence as signs, symbols, and practices. God has been present with every human being from the beginning of creation until now. God speaks to different cultures and different peoples in different times in ways that they can understand. And the mistake and the sin and the idolatry is when we take those signs and symbols and practices and turn them into God. Therefore, our prayer is not for more signs or symbols, but for eyes to see the presence of God among us. This brings us to the second thing that we can learn from Nehemiah 8. If you're like me, you read the story of Ezra and Nehemiah and you say to yourself, this is what I find to be so disgusting about religion. Two guys with all the power who make rules and those rules don't apply to them, just using the masses to continue to build their own power in an effort to service their own egos. I have found that the times that I am the most disgusted with religion is when there is an abuse of power. In fact, when you look at the stories of Jesus, Jesus is never critical of sinners. The only people that Jesus is critical of are people who abuse power. For this reason, we need to get really good at being able to identify organizations or people who are only in religion to consolidate power, much the same way Ezra and Nehemiah were so long ago. Instead, we need to be able to find religious bodies as well as religious leaders who askew authority and strive for something different. Now, Paradox Church is not a perfect church. We have our own share of problems. But one thing that we work toward with tireless effort is that we strive to be a church that is not an authority, but instead is a companion. If you've ever worshiped with us on Saturday morning, 
then you know that I start every sermon that I give by saying this phrase, paradox sermons are meant to start discussions and not end them. Most churches view sermons as the end-all, be-all, final authoritative word on a passage of the text, and I will tell you, that's not how we roll here at Paradox. We want you to engage and discuss and own what you believe, to think critically about the things that you believe. And you may disagree, and that will lead to a discussion, and we believe that discussion can ultimately help us both see who God is better because God is found in the diversity of our perspective of who God is. We also understand that not every person will come to our church and find it to be their spiritual home. They may join us for a week. They may join us for a season. They may join us for life. And either way, we hope that we can be your companion rather than an authority on your spiritual journey. If you have any ideas of how we can be a better spiritual companion and askew the temptation for power and our own ego and not be an authority, please do not hesitate to email me at craig at paradoxredlands.com. We believe that healthy religion is a companion and not an authority. And that is the second thing that we can learn from Nehemiah 8. The third thing we can learn from Nehemiah 8, I am going to tell you right up front and then talk about what it means. The third thing is this, how we understand God with us defines who we are. After all, if we asked Ezra and Nehemiah, hey, how do you define God with us? They would both respond, I'm pretty sure with these words, if God is with us, then we will be rich and powerful. After all, God is rich and powerful, so we should be rich and powerful. This understanding of God with us ultimately led Ezra and Nehemiah to do two horrific acts of hatred, which are found in Ezra 10 and Nehemiah 13. So you can see that defining what it means for God to be with us defines who you and I are, which raises the question, what does God with us mean to you? That is an important question for anyone who considers themselves to be a God follower to answer. I believe it will ultimately define who you are. And so one of the most important things you can do in response to this podcast is answer this question. What does God with us mean to you? Now, in a few moments, I want to share my answer to that question. And I don't share that answer with you in an attempt to get you to have the same answer as me. Instead, I'd like to testify to you what I have found God with us to mean to me. I hope that this testimony inspires you to think about what God with us means to you. So here we go. When I say God with us, I mean that this life on earth and what we do with it matters, that everyone is bound together by a mysterious singular origin, that we are all wonderfully unique but somehow connected to each other, 
that we aren't just connected to each other, but we are also connected to all of creation, that it is good to be alive, that it is good to live in the heartache that we encounter, that it is good to laugh until our sides hurt, that we live with a great hope for today, and that somehow, no matter how dark it may get, we trust that tomorrow can be more beautiful than today. That's what I mean when I say God is with us. Now, that's a bit of a bulky, run-on sentence kind of answer. (laughs) So maybe it's better if I define that question, what does God with us mean to me, Uh, in a bit of a different way. I'd like to wrap up this podcast by telling you seven different stories about how I understand that God is with us. Now, there is a common thread between these seven stories because they all end the exact same way. And the exact way they end is, I will say, you kind of had to be there. Because when you have an encounter with the divine, it's really hard to put that experience into words. So here we go. Seven stories that define what it means for God to be with us. Story number one. I was walking in Redlands a few months ago when it was raining. Now, I love living in Redlands, and I love walking around Redlands. And during this rainy Monday morning, I was walking my dog, minding my own business in the rain, when all of a sudden the rain stopped. Once the rain stopped, I looked up in the sky, and I kid you not, the clouds parted, and I saw the most brilliant, vibrant, and vivid rainbow I have ever seen. I immediately looked around to see if anyone else was seeing what I was seeing, but there was no one in sight. Not only that, but I reached for my pocket to take a picture of the rainbow so that that way I could show it to my wife, but I was walking that morning without my cell phone. So I just had to stand there and look at the rainbow. And after a few moments, it was gone. You just kind of had to be there. Story number two. I was leading worship with an amazing praise band at Junior Senior Bible Conference in 2015. And there was this moment on Friday night where we decided to close the service by playing a song called Dance on Our Graves by Paper Out. Dance on Our Graves is not a typical praise song. We were taking a risk by placing that song at the end of the service. And the reason we put that song in is because it speaks about this longing for an encounter with the divine. Now, because it's not a typical praise song, no one in the room had heard it before. And so we start playing this song and all of a sudden something happens. People start leaning over to the person next to them. They put their head on their shoulders. People start embracing. And then all of a sudden, midway through the song, people stand up spontaneously without direction and begin attempting to sing this song they've never heard at the top of their lungs. By the end of the song, people were in tears. I was in tears. The praise leaders next to me were in tears. Everyone was in tears and everyone just stood there for a few moments trying to process what happened. You kind of had to be there. Story number three. 
A few months ago, my son was just over the age of two. Now, good parents do not compare their kids' progress to one another, but I'm not a good parent. At the age of two, my daughter had a vocabulary that I'm sure was about 10,000 words. My son at that same age might have been lucky to have 100 words in his vocabulary. <laughs> not only that, but he didn't really speak in complete sentences. And by the time this story took place, he had maybe spoken one or two complete sentences in his life. And so this story unfolds when my son has just turned two, and it's pizza night at our house, and I'm making the pizza. Now, I'm not a very good cook, but I will say the best thing that I can make for my family is pizza. So I worked over this pizza, and I put it in the barbecue. I brought it out of the barbecue. It was hot. I cut it up. I let it cool, and then I place it in front of my son and my wife and my daughter, and we pray, and then we start eating pizza. Now, I took my first bite, and I thought to myself, oh, I got it right this time. I left it in the barbecue just long enough to get the crust crispy without making it crunchy. And as I was thinking to myself, oh, I got this pizza right, all of a sudden, I look over at my son. He's taken his first bite, and he looks right at me, and he says, Daddy, I like pizza. You kind of had to be there. Story number four. My wife and I were hiking in Chile together at Torres del Paine National Park. And on day two of our five-day hike, we all of a sudden heard the wind start to pick up. Now, this was not any ordinary wind. This was a supernatural, powerful wind. To give you an idea of how powerful it was, it knocked me over at one point, which is a story that I don't think is funny, but my wife tells with great joy to anyone who will listen. Now, the wind was so strong that we actually had to hide behind rocks until the wind would die down, and then we'd scamper up the trail as far as we could go before the wind picked back up. It was the most intense, windy experience of my lifetime. Not only that, but because the wind was so strong, there were several campers and backpackers who elected to stay in their tents that day and wait for the wind to pass to the next day so they could hike in clearer weather. So here we are hiking in this heavy wind, and I'm not sure whether we're going to make it to our campsite in time. But as we keep trudging along, we all of a sudden finally get into our campsite and it's surrounded by these trees. Now I look at these trees and these trees are swaying violently. And we camp among the trees in order to minimize the impact of the wind, but all night I hear this incredibly loud rushing sound as these trees sway back and forth. And I keep thinking one of these trees is gonna fall on our tent and this is going to be the end of the adventures of Craig and Kimmy. And as I thought about the indiscriminate wrath of nature, I all of a sudden became very aware of how small and temporary I was. You kind of had to be there. Story number five. My college friend Nick and I were heading back from Spokane to Bozeman, Montana. We were driving along at 80 miles an hour on a highway at night when all of a sudden my friend Nick started screaming. He screamed this way, ah! 
I then turned and looked at the road, and there in the road was a giant elk. In response to Nick's screaming, and in response to the elk in the road, I yelled out, Elk! I then swerved to miss the elk, and I kid you not, it felt like we missed the elk by no more than six inches. Nick and I are still screaming. He's screaming with the, ah, and I'm screaming, elk. And all of a sudden, we realize we didn't hit the elk that was certain to be our doom. And we started laughing. After laughing for five solid minutes, we then spent the next hour of the car ride talking about how grateful we were that we didn't hit that elk. And we were just two random guys driving in a Honda Civic on a freeway in the middle of nowhere who were all of a sudden very grateful to be alive. You kind of had to be there. Story number six. One of the great joys of my job is officiating weddings. What they don't tell you is that when you officiate weddings is that you have the best seats in the house. And every wedding I have done has meant something special to me in one way or another. But there was one wedding that moved me to tears. The reason this wedding moved me to tears was because it was the groom's second marriage. And I knew the groom from before, and I knew that the groom had gone through one of those awful, gut-wrenching, terrible divorces. There was lies and deceptions and betrayals and name-calling. It was the thing that nightmares are made out of. And so you fast forward a couple years after that terrible divorce occurred, and all of a sudden I'm standing at the front next to this man as his bride is coming down the aisle, and I start tearing up for a very specific reason. I can't believe that he's willing to give marriage another shot. And I knew this groom, and I thought to myself, here's a guy who went through the worst that marriage has to offer. And he says, yeah, it's terrible, but I believe it can be better. And for that reason, I started to cry. You kind of had to be there. Story number seven. My wife and I traveled to Japan in 2011, and one of the cities we stayed at was Hiroshima. Of all the nuclear bombs that have been created, only two have been used as weapons against other people, both of which were used as weapons by the United States of America. One of those times was against the city of Hiroshima in Japan. So my wife and I travel there not knowing really what to expect. And when we arrive, we're stunned at how much the people of Hiroshima have adopted an identity of peace and being very strongly against nuclear weapons. What we found out is that every time any country in the world uses a nuclear weapon in testing, they will receive a letter from the mayor of Hiroshima asking them to stop, to cease and desist their nuclear research and begging them to never use nuclear weapons on another human being. Not only that, but there's so many poignant moments found throughout the Peace Park. 
And there's all kinds of education and information that tells you about the destructive nature of nuclear weapons and where our world is headed as we continue to build up stockpiles of these mass weapons of destruction. The park was incredibly moving, not only to me, but to my wife as well. But there is one moment that was transcendent for both of us. In one corner of the park, there is a children's monument dedicated to all of the kids who died as a result of the nuclear blast. We walked over to the children's monument and we saw 200 kids surrounding the monument. We weren't sure what that was about, but we stopped to look at what they were doing and they laid an origami wreath at the feet of this children's monument. After the wreath was laid, there was a moment of silence. And then all of a sudden, one kid screamed something out in Japanese. Then all of the other kids, about 200 of them, shouted a response in Japanese. Then the kid that was the caller shouted something else, and the kids responded with something else. Now, I don't speak Japanese, so I couldn't understand a word they were saying. And yet, I will tell you, I understood every word that they were saying. If that doesn't make sense, well, you kind of had to be there. I tell you these seven stories in an effort to share with you what it means to me for God to be with us. Because my brothers and sisters, what I have found to be true is that God was with us then, God is with us now, and God will be with us tomorrow. May we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all of us.